Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Matthew McManus, and we're going to be talking about his book, A Critical Legal Examination of Liberalism and Liberal Rights. Matt, mm-hmm. thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me again. Um, and I just wanted to say beforehand that my heart goes out to all of your listeners in India. Uh, I don't like Modi. Uh, I'm sure many of your listeners do. But whatever your stand on politics are, I'm sure we can agree that this pandemic sucks and we all want it to be fucking over sooner rather than later. So totally agree with you, my friend. Totally agree with you. And, you know, my my good wishes with the folks in Canada, uh, too. So, Matt, uh, I'm going to start with this question. So why did you decide to uh, write a book on a subject as specific as this? Because as I was reading the book, uh, uh, I don't know how to classify this I, I would still classify this more as a philosophical argument uh, than a legal argument although uh, i think it has a huge legal uh, uh, angle and mm-hmm. it has a lot of legal ramifications because uh, uh, when we go into chapter four and five of your book these, there are significant legal ramifications uh, about what mm-hmm. you're proposing so why did you decide to write this book well, there are two big reasons. One was personal uh, and the other was, uh, I suppose you could say, theoretical, right? The personal reason is uh, my background is in um, legal studies, if you want to call it broadly that. So I have an LLM in international human rights law uh, and then a PhD in social legal studies. Um, and I worked for uh, different legal organizations uh, back in the day, like uh, Committee for International Justice. So I kind of want to get back to my roots a little bit, as it were, uh, as a kind of legal theorist. Legal theorist. Uh, and I kind of thought, well, what could I do that would be in line with that. Uh, And I thought, hey, you know, I used to write a lot about critical legal studies, which was a school of thought pioneered by people like uh, Roberto Unger, Pierre Schlag, and others, you know, who I mentioned in the book. Uh, And I was like, you know, I haven't really talked that much about liberalism, even though I'm very interested uh, and the liberal approach to rights and law. So why don't we do a book on that? That that was the personal reason, right? Uh, Kind of going back to where I once belonged, as the Beatles uh, put it in their, uh, in that song. But um, the kind of more theosophical reason, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this, is I wanted to do two things. Uh, one was I wanted to kind of present an alternative left-wing approach to rights uh, that was plausible, coherent, uh, and could be used as a jumping point uh, for further discussions uh, about what such an approach to rights might look like. But the other thing I wanted to do was to show why it is that many progressives have reasons to be critical uh, of liberalism, but why they also have reasons to actually admire uh, a lot of what liberals accomplished. Uh, and I think that this is something that's sometimes underplayed. Um, and in fact, I'm going to be talking about it in my new book as well. Um, because, you know, liberalism, like any political doctrine, has its defects. Uh, and I highlight them at great length in the book. Uh, but I also see in liberalism in many ways as a fundamentally emancipatory movement focused on, as I put it, uh, human emancipation and human equality. The fact that I disagree with what that would entail doesn't mean that I don't admire uh, the conviction of liberals who fought for those things in many different parts of the globe, however imperfectly. Yeah, so you start your book by actually giving a historical perspective of, uh, you know, liberal rights and their critics. Now, here's the thing. So I don't want to get into the details of what's the history of rights are and how, you know, the concept of natural law and rights come about, because even there, there is, you know, there is the conservative Christian point of view that these are natural laws. These are laws that we derive from nature, as in rights are there that are derived from nature. But on the other hand, there is the secular movement, which is, you know, where uh, we they come from a different point of view. Uh, so let, let me give you a Harari. You, know, you all know a Harari point of view who would say, you know, these are fictions that we have created mm-hmm. and we kind of agree on these different fictions. From so, so my first question to you would be is that when you look at it from a critical legal perspective, mm-hmm. it is very important to understand. And uh, uh, I kind of know where you're coming from is, but uh, where would you place yourself? So if I was to ask you, where do we derive our rights from? So mm-hmm. where would you stand there in that corner? Because as you just said, that uh, you're not totally anti-liberalism and you believe you take the good wherever it comes from. And 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 uh, to be very honest, I think uh, what I've always admired about ri- your writing is that you don't, you know, dismiss the conservative point of view at all. In fact, you you go far further ahead and you actually try to take whatever good uh, the conservative argument has to offer. In, uh, and I've always noticed that in your writing. So, but le- let us set this baseline first. Mm-hmm. So if I was to ask you, where do the rights that we talk about, you know, we just talk about rights as if they exist somewhere. Mm-hmm. So where do they come from? If I was to put that argument to you. 
Okay, that's a great question. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to go on forever about it because we could have just an endless discussion about it. Uh, but I think it might be helpful here to juxtapose what you might broadly call a conservative conception of natural rights uh, to the one that I'm putting forward uh, in line with the tradition of liberalism, right? So broadly speaking, uh, conservative proponents of rights tend to see rights as flowing in some sense uh, from nature, from God, uh, or from some combination of the two, you know, human nature as created by God, right? Uh, and you still see proponents of conservative approaches to rights putting forward these kinds of arguments. Uh, usually the God bit is downplayed a little bit, but you know, it's still latent within it. Uh, probably the most famous example of this would be somebody like John Finnis, who says, look, natural rights flow from the fact that human beings have certain needs. Uh, those needs are related to human nature, uh, which we can understand relatively well. He thinks it's an Aristotelian human nature. Uh, and we derive rights from that, uh, from by, via a kind of dialectical process, right? This is what human beings are. This is what they need. This is the rights that they can therefore have in relation to one another and in relation to forms of political organization, right? The liberal perspective uh, was very different, right? Uh, now, this isn't to say it doesn't draw some inspiration for that, particularly early on, you see people like John Locke uh, putting forward arguments for natural rights, you know, so-called coming from God. Uh, but ultimately, the conclusion that's reached is that rights emerge in some mysterious way um, from human subjectivity, right? They are creations uh, of human minds, right? They don't pre-exist um, our willful effort to try to create them and instantiate them through law. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't have a kind of objectivity to them, right? Now, where this objectivity comes from, morally speaking, uh, differs from between the liberal thinkers, right? Uh, for somebody like Kant, right, um, liberal rights come from, yes, human subjectivity, but a human subject that's willing to comport themselves in line with their moral duties, uh, which includes obeying the universal laws uh, that they give to themselves, right? Uh, for a utilitarian who's of a liberal bent, uh, obviously our rights come from an acceptance of our moral duty to maximize utility for the greatest number wherever possible, right? Uh, so this is something else I stress in the book, right? The arguments made by liberal thinkers uh, are by no means uniform, right? There's a lot of different uh, conceptions. The argument that I put forward uh, and the position I support uh, is kind of a, <laughs> this is going to sound bad, but a uh, quasi-Kantian one, uh, but very much in line with the position of somebody like John Rawls, uh, where I say that we need to ask ourselves what kind of rights uh, reasonable people under the proper conditions of impartiality uh, would choose to endorse. Uh, and I said that, that they would want this twin set of rights uh, that would be central to maximizing respect for human dignity, uh, which I see as being the most intrinsically important thing that a human being has to value. And I can get into the weeds about this a little bit, but that's kind of the broad thrust of the book. Yeah, but that, that's what I wanted to talk about. So when we use a word like human dignity, right? So here's the thing, as a humble student of philosophy myself, so I would be like, we have to be very precise in our definitions of when we mean human dignity as a, uh, uh, because uh, we live in a world where I'm not a religious person, right? Now, uh, the classic case on many occasions, what I've noticed is that uh, when the rubber, you know, rubber meets the road, uh, the problem is that, you know, how do we draw that line? We have to be very precise when we say human dignity. And, and in fact, I'm going to go on it later on, maybe in the second half, when I talk about self-authorship that you talk about as a possible solution when you, when you go into detail about that. But when we say human dignity, how do we define it? Because it's very important, right? What, what, what might offend me may not offend the other person. So how do we work around that then? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. Uh, this is something that I don't actually address that much in this book. Uh, the reason being, I have a long genealogy of the concept of dignity uh, in my first book, uh, Making Human Dignity Central to International Human Rights Law. So if your readers are interested, um, they're welcome to take a peruse at that. Uh, but you know, you're absolutely right that the way that people have conceived and argued for human dignity uh, varies broadly. Uh, some people deny that we even have human dignity. Uh, Steven Pinker, who some of your listeners probably are familiar with, a uh, well-known liberal theorist, wrote a piece back in I think it was 2001 or 2002, called The Stupidity uh, of Dignity. Uh, you know, he's not a man to its words. Uh, but the reason, you know, he's invoking uh, this in an uncharitable sense is because he's trying to attack the Christian conception of human dignity uh, put forward by the then Bush administration, which he sees as a barrier to the scientific enterprise, right? Um, and, you know, there's the genealogy of dignity is a fascinating one. You can find references to it in a variety uh, of different religious traditions, uh, the Roman Catholic tradition is probably the one that's most familiar to Europeans, but there's also re uh, references to human dignity, uh, so-called, 
Um, in, for instance, the Buddhist tradition emerging out of India, um, the Hindu um, emperor, uh, sorry, the Buddhist emperor Ashoka, for example, um, spoke about you know the need to respect uh, the difference of the other uh, in our relationship to one another because um, the other is a human being very much like I am. Uh, and rather than trying to impose my view on him, I or her, uh, I should be trying to dialogue to learn from them uh, as a kind of sign of respect uh, for our mutual status uh, as you know, individuals, uh, or sorry, individuals within uh, the greater cosmic order, right? Uh, so you can see references to it in a variety of religious traditions. The one that I tend to focus on, though, uh, is obviously the liberal conception uh, of human dignity, which is probably best espoused by Immanuel Kant. Um, not even best espoused. I think Kant's uh, account is pretty much uh, uniformly accepted by most liberals as the definitive one. Uh, and Kant's argument, of course, is that our dignity comes from being an end in ourselves, um, by which he means that we can't be used merely as a means to other people's ends. Uh, now, this is very complicated, and there's a lot of controversy about it. Uh, but long story short, it means, you know, if I sit there, Gushal, and I say, you know, Gushal, you know, I'm going to pay you $10. Uh, would you mind going and get me a beer for a store? Obviously, from the store. Obviously, I'm using you as a kind of means to my ends, but because we're agreeing to it, uh, I'm not violating your fundamental dignity. You're choosing to accept uh, undertaking this action for me uh, in pursuit of my ends because it benefits you as well. And we treat each other with mutual respect in this sense, right? Uh, that would be, it'd be very different if I held a gun to your head and I said, Kushal, uh, you're going to the store and you're going to get me a beer whether you want to or not or whether you will it or not, right? Then I'm treating you as a purely uh, a means to my end. That's putting it really simply, right? Uh, and I have a great deal of respect for this account of dignity, this idea that we're all ends in ourselves, right? Uh, that can never be treated merely as means for others. But as you point out, uh, I transform it a little bit by saying that if we understand ourselves merely as ends, that doesn't really give us a good sense of what it is that makes life worth living uh, for most individuals, right? Uh, if all I am is a kind of moral agent uh, who enjoys autonomy, that doesn't seem very inspiring. Uh, so I try to pump this up uh, with references to the importance of things like expressive self-authorship, uh, which as I mentioned is an idea I derived from a Brazilian scholar named Roberto Unger uh, and actually an Indian economist, uh, Amartya Sen. Amartya Sen. Yeah, so, but here's the problem, Matt, and uh, this is something that I constantly was uh, going through in my head. Uh, it, would it be unfair to say that one of the a priori assumptions in using Kant uh, and the categorical imperative, basically, that's what we're talking about here, and uh, and going through that maybe to Rawls and all that, the biggest a priori assumption here is the conception of free will, that we all have free will. Now, so as a compatibilist myself, who who kind of gets it because uh, I, I fall firmly into the Daniel Dennett uh, camp here. But then what would you tell someone, uh, let's say, who says, well, there's no such thing as free will, then how do you justify human dignity in the case of absence of free will then? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, and it's not something that political theorists tend to address very head on uh, quite frequently, including liberal political theorists, right? Uh, so take somebody like John Rawls, right? Um, John Rawls argues very prominently, uh, uh, you know, he, he makes this very compelling argument for the importance of what he calls the um, first principle of justice, which is an equal scheme of basic liberties for all. Uh, but you know, there are some arguments he makes in his book, Theory of Justice, that would seem to imply that actually we're not very free uh, individuals. Uh, we're actually very, very, very much determined by social circumstances that are around us. And in fact, he hedges a lot of those uh, in order to make an argument uh, for a more equal economic system. And people have pointed out, well, how can you claim that we're free on the one hand and yet the other hand determined by various economic, economic and social circumstances that are beyond our control? Uh, and his argument uh, in response to this was to say, I'm agnostic on the question of free will. Uh, what I'm talking about here uh, is political and moral freedom. Uh, whether or not we're genuinely metaphysical free uh, is something that other philosophers have to consider. Uh, and I have to concede that my book is subject to the same kind of limitation, right? Uh, I have my own thoughts about free will, but what I'm talking about isn't um, whether a metaphysical freedom uh, in the sense of whether it, uh, we actually choose our own destiny. Uh, what I'm talking about is whether or not we should create the political spaces for people to be able to develop their sense of self in a relatively free way. Uh, whether that means in an ultimate cosmic sense, we're free 
uh, is a question that I just don't really have an answer to. Uh, personally, I don't think so. I actually think that we are likely determined uh, by far more than we actually can ever possibly appreciate. Uh, but that doesn't seem to actually count against, for me against the importance of giving people the political freedom uh, to pursue the kind of lives that they think are meaningful. All right, but don't you think you'll run into a problem of uh, responsibility, right? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you went through the recent debate uh, that Dennett had with, I, I keep forgetting the name of the other guy. I'm very sorry. It was a beautiful book that they just launched. And, and that's where the problem rises, right? Because we're talking about legal rights and we're talking mm -hmm. with legal rights we're talking about a legal mm -hmm. system and the entire legal edifice whether it's western whether it's indian or whether it's any legal system in the world right now it's based on a basic a priori mm -hmm. assumption of moral responsibility mm -hmm. and if if you don't have moral responsibility then you don't have dignity because they are interconnected because uh, otherwise, how do you conceptualize dignity without moral responsibility? I know there are some uh, some arguments out there which which kind of try to work around this. But uh, to me, every single time, because I want to connect this now to your critique of liberalism and liberal rights, right? Mm -hmm. So you talk about it in the limitation of liberalism and liberal rights. But then how do we work around this? If we're talking about the limitations of liberalism on one hand, and we are presenting this idea of dignity on the other hand, but then we all, and the constant problem that I kept on having in the book was that what do we do about moral responsibility in this entire process? See, that's a very good question. And this is one of the things uh, I won't actually ascribe the kind of weight uh, that you might to this notion of raw moral responsibility in the cosmic sense, right? Uh, and in fact, I don't think that most progressive scholars would. And this is one of the reasons being uh, that we accept that in many ways, whether or not uh, you're compatibilist or determinist or not, uh, we remain highly circumscribed and determined by the social conditions in which we exist, right? Uh, and this is especially true when it comes to things like crime uh, and the association of crime uh, with penal responsibility. For example. So for instance, we all know that poverty plays a major role uh, in generating the conditions for many people to turn to criminal activities, right? Uh, and not just poverty, but a wide variety of other circumstances. Uh, racialization, a lack of life opportunities because of prejudice, um, the presence of extremism in your community, hugely important, right? Uh, and these are things that criminologists have increasingly tried to wrestle with uh, when it comes to things like the ascription of moral responsibility to one's actions uh, when committing a criminal act, uh, and of course, when it comes to things like sentencing uh, for criminal activity, right? Uh, you know, how responsible were you? How much were you determined by your circumstances? Uh, and ultimately, uh, I think that the conclusion a lot of criminologists have reached in a utilitarian uh, mindset is that we shouldn't be focusing uh, on things like moral responsibility because there are just too many determinants that lead people to act in a certain way. Uh, the reason why we should have something like punishment isn't because we're trying to engage in a retributive activity uh, to kind of express disdain for your activity, your actions, uh, but purely as a means of deterring uh, certain kinds of bad behavior. Uh, and in fact, if you think about it, the notion of deterrence for crime uh, is predicated on this exception of a certain degree of social determinacy, right? If you were truly an absolutely free moral agent that was not influenced by anything around you, uh, the whole deterrent function of punishment wouldn't actually work, right? Uh, and I absolutely agree that in certain senses, if you move away from this notion that we're absolutely morally responsible for what we do, uh, it challenges certain conceptions of dignity, right? Uh, but again, that's not the kind of one that I'm arguing for, right? I argue that, in fact, if anything, because we are so socially determined by economic circumstances, uh, that's why we want them to be organized democratically uh, so that we have a say of the circumstances in which we're embedded. Uh, and also why I argue for a certain degree of egalitarianism, because I say, look, this notion that you find in possessive iterations of individualism, that we're all responsible for our life and that we can all make it if we try, uh, simply isn't right. No, it's wrong. Uh, you know, people rise and fall for morally arbitrary reasons, which is why we shouldn't ascribe those any kind of weight in determining how we should distribute resources. Uh, and in fact, what we should be trying to do is make sure that everyone around the world uh, has enough to enjoy a reasonably good life uh, in line with their own conception of what that good life would be. So I want to read an excerpt because I think it, it sums up your thoughts very well. So you know, where you talk about the a critical legal conception of dignified self-authorship. So you say, I argue that dignity is defined by an individual's overall capacity to engage in self-authorship. This is a universal moral claim in the sense that dignity, as I unpack it, 
is valuable to individuals since the most important end we can set for ourselves is to live a life where we can become the kind of person we wish to be and have the kind of experiences we wish to have. It has an egalitarian dimension to it since as moral equals, each should be equally capable of pursuing this end except where subject to acceptable qualifications. Now, here's the problem again, uh, Matt. Uh, the problem again lies in what are those acceptable qualifications? Now, I know you get into the part where, you know, you talk about uh, Sane and uh, I, I, I forgot the other name. Uh, I think Nussbaum. Yeah. So you talk about their book, Creating Capabilities, and then you talk about, you know, uh, they are too freedom centric, right? Uh, that's what you talk about. If I remember, uh, I think it was around uh, two, three pages down the line. And you say that, that, that their, their, their focus is too much on freedom where you talk about the 10 points and then you critique that. But here again, uh, the problem lies is that there are, there are gaps. And, and I know you kind of openly admitted in the books is that there are some things that need to be fine tuned there. But the problem is that everybody would like an egalitarian world. I would too. But how do we go about it is where the problem arises. Let's say now you and I, uh, in fact, you know, we've had this conversation on DMs too, where I've told you it's, it's, it's fascinating how you and I actually look at the world in a very similar way where we identify the problems exactly the same way. You and I have actually identified problems pretty similarly. But I go about it completely differently in terms of the solutions and you go about it completely differently in terms of the solutions. So now I want to talk about solutions where uh, you've mentioned it in the past too, but you have a focus again, like me, you actually focus on the economic aspect a lot because you believe the economy is intertwined with our life. But then let's say you give an example of unions as a possible solution. Now, my question is that do we have enough material in the real world let's say i, I come from a, uh, a developing country where i have only seen misery i i don't know how how which are the way to explain it when we have tried more socialist leaning models in my society so how would you convince a person like me because you do talk about it in the book yeah, that's a fantastic question. Uh, and I should say, uh, just like the political right is not a monolith, the political left is not a monolith either. Uh, so I have very deep disagreements uh, with some of my comrades on this question because I identify as a liberal socialist, right? Um, in the sense that I believe that the state uh, or any kind of political organization for that matter has to respect uh, most of the classical liberal liberties. Uh, in fact, if anything, uh, I feel that we could do a much better job uh, of respecting those liberties, particularly when it comes to things like uh, freedom of speech uh, and contemporaneously freedom of assembly, very important, right? Uh, however, I don't ascribe the same kind of weight to private property uh, that many of the classical liberals from Locke to Kant would. Um, I'm much more on the tradition of somebody like, say, John Stuart Mill, uh, who identified as a socialist near the end of his life, uh, or John Rawls, uh, from whom I, got, I drew the term liberal socialism. Uh, in that, I say, look, you know, uh, it's extremely important if we actually respect people as moral equals uh, to ensure that they're equally capable of leading a good life, except subject to the kind of qualifications that I mentioned in the book, right? Uh, the most important of those qualifications, and again, this is purely Rawlsian, uh, is that equality, inequalities are permissible if they work to the benefit of the least well-off, right? Uh, now, the reason why Rawls and myself emphasize the least well-off is that what you see typically in society uh, is an emphasis on the importance of inequalities as flowing from something like workmanship, right? This idea that, well, people do better, that's because they've worked harder, uh, and that means they're entitled to what they have, and they shouldn't have to give it uh, to someone else who hasn't worked as hard as them. Uh, I think that there's really no basis for that kind of argument, right? Uh, not only do I think it's very clear that our society right now empirically uh, isn't predicated on the workmanship ideal, since there are plenty of people who didn't work very hard and have an awful lot, and people who work their fucking ass off, uh, particularly in developing countries who have nothing, right? Um, I mean, if we could just list the examples ad infinitum if we really wanted to. Uh, but also because I think if you, the idea of workmanship uh, is fundamentally flawed. Since, as I mentioned before, uh, many of the reasons why it is that people are able to actually labor hard or intensively or intelligently uh, is dependent on morally arbitrary circumstances for which they can claim no credit, uh, much like a lot of the reasons why people wind up in crappy jobs uh, where they work 12 hours a day, uh, building, sh making shoes uh, for pennies. Uh, is also determined by morally arbitrary circumstances, right? So if we're going to have a system, it needs to be one that works to those people 
uh, and the kind of inequalities that we can prevent uh, would be those that would incentivize economic activity, which will hopefully help, uh, ideally help um, those who are least well off rise uh, in terms of their quality of life. And this is where I differ from uh, other socialists as well, who would say things like, no, we hate to have an absolutely egalitarian system uh, in virtually every respect. Um, and the argument for this usually somewhat plausibly is that uh, only absolute equality could attain something like a classless society, right? Uh, I think it'd be nice to have a classless society, but I just don't think that's as important uh, as maintaining the incentive structures that'll be necessary for the generation of wealth insofar as that wealth benefits those who are least well off, right? Uh, I think it's much more important to help the poor uh, become better uh, than to establish a society of pure equality uh, where everyone is doing not particularly well. So I have to say, I love this one line in the book that you use. You called liberalism was an imperfect system marred by many hypocrisies in practice. Uh, that, that, that was a beautiful line. I have to give you credit there. But uh, now let's talk a little bit about uh, this twinned model of two basic rights. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction to that? Sure. Well, I argue that there are two rights, uh, really two and a half, uh, that we'd have reason to value uh, if, uh, you know, if we were impartially deliberating uh, on what kind of rights we think a good society should have. Uh, the first is what I call a democratic right uh, to the, A, the liberal liberties, classical liberal liberties, again, um, accepting uh, the strong rights to private property. Um, but you know, this is supplemented by an argument that we should be capable of determining um, the kind of laws that govern us to the extent possible. Uh, and what I'm thinking about here is that Frankly, you know, we should adopt a far more directly democratic system uh, than what we have today in many parts of the globe. Uh, and the kind of examples that I frequently appeal to uh, would be something like Denmark. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the citizenship, uh, sorry, citizens initiative, uh, where essentially what uh, the Danish state is now allowing people to do uh, is it'll put forward uh, different legislative prospects uh, and you can actually go as a citizen and vote on them, right? Uh, say, you know, I want... Bill C-20 to pass, but I don't want Bill C-30 to pass, putting it really simply, right? Uh, and I think this is a very good way uh, of allowing citizens to have a say uh, in the kind of laws that govern them in a very direct sense, right? Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be the only way uh, we could realize this first, right? Uh, another example that I'm flirting with um, increasingly, actually, uh, would be something that you see, for instance, in Ireland and Australia, uh, which is that rather than direct or uh, voting directly on legislation, uh, citizens can have a say in the kind of general orientation of their country uh, through referendums on constitutional reforms, for example. Uh, so, for instance, in the United States, uh, it's up to judges. Uh, and I talk about this in the last chapter of the book to interpret the Constitution. Um, and typically, American judges, uh, with the exception of the Warren Court, have interpreted it in a very conservative way. Um, quite a bit different in Canada, as you may know. Uh, so it's, that's not uniform, but uh, that's just, you know. A interesting point, right? Um, but, you know, in Ireland, you know, for instance, uh, they've allowed referendum on things like um, same-sex marriage uh, and abortion. Uh, and I think this is also a positive uh, way to go. Okay. So those are two ways that I could see us uh, realizing something uh, like the first right. Uh, another dimension that I talk about uh, to the realization of the first right uh, is the importance of things like workplace democracy, right? Uh, and this is, you're mentioning unions, right? So I see it as important uh, that workers have a say uh, in the corporations that are formed uh, and which make up a huge part of their life. Uh, and I think that we should adopt something like the Mondragon uh, model that you see in Spain. Uh, for your listeners who aren't familiar, Mondragon is a major workers cooperative. Uh, I believe it's in central Spain, maybe the Basque region, not 100% sure of that. Uh, but it's run by the workers. Uh, it's a large corporation. It's worth about 40 billion euros. Uh, it competes with other uh, traditional kinds of corporations uh, in the European context. And it's been very successful. Uh, but one of the things that is unique about it, of course, is that all the members of the cooperative have a say uh, in what the company does. Uh, and they also reap more egalitarian benefits from being a member of this cooperative than what you'd see in a traditional corporation, uh, where, for instance, now the division between what a CEO makes and the average worker can sometimes be uh, 200 to 1, which is really striking right? Uh, when you think about it. Um, so that's the first right that I talk about uh, and some of the ways that we might go about realizing it. Uh, the second right, as, I point, uh, as uh, you pointed out, uh, is a right to an equality of human capabilities, uh, except uh, where inequities are necessary in order to work to the benefit of the least well off uh, or where they flow from non-morally arbitrary circumstances. Uh, and uh, 
I give a couple of different examples uh, of how this could play out in the book. Uh, most of them uh, are drawn uh, from, again, March Sand and, Mar uh, and Martha Nosebaum's pioneering work. Um, but I say it's a lot more tricky to figure out how to realize this right, uh, since, of course, if we're going to try to secure an egalitarian inequality of human capabilities, uh, how you're going to go about doing that will depend a lot on the country uh, and the setting uh, that we're talking about, right? Uh, since the kind of equal capabilities that you might want to prioritize in an Indian context uh, would look very different than what we might want to prioritize in a Canadian context, for example. Uh, so one of the things that Martha Nosebaum talks about a great deal in an Indian context is the necessity of securing equal educational opportunities for girls uh, in particular. Uh, and she points to the province of, uh, sorry, the state of Kerala uh, as a kind of an exemplar uh, of how uh, the government has tried to go about securing more equality in education for women um, through uh, food aid programs, for example, right? Uh, that's obviously not something that we would need to prioritize as much, I should say, uh, in Canada, where there are other kinds of inequities uh, that would need to be tackled through other kinds of political reform. So here's my problem. So, so I don't know how to put it, but you propose a more direct democracy in comparison to a more representative system of democracy. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the problem. So how do we deal with the tyranny of the majority then? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And if you push me too far on it, I'll be in trouble since I'm still thinking about what the right balance is, right? Um, and you know, I released a paper that came out shortly afterwards that was published in Law, Culture, uh, and Humanities. Uh, it came out before the book, but was written uh, after I finished the book. Uh, it's kind of the weird way publishing operates. Uh, where I qualify some of my positions on this. Uh, but I think it's a serious question, right? Uh, and anxieties about the potential of direct democracy to descend into mass rule have been present uh, as far back as Plato, right? Uh, and I do think that sometimes progressive advocates of direct democracy, like myself, don't take them seriously enough uh, because they assume that most people are fundamentally benevolent, right? Uh, I don't think that most people are fundamentally benevolent. Uh, I think if you want my full evaluation that human beings are neither good or bad, uh, we're somewhere in the middle. Uh, if anything, I kind of respect Madison's opinion on that. Um, but, you know, my kind of contention is that we can we can uh, look at the Irish and Danish models uh, as examples of how it is that we can institute direct democratic reforms in a, a political system uh, while nonetheless still maintaining respect for all the classical liberal rights um, by saying, look, citizens can have a say uh, in on any number of issues, uh, as long as they're not trying to fundamentally uh, challenge uh, or negate the rights of their fellow citizens uh, in a profound way. Uh, and this is something that you've seen quite consistently uh, in Denmark, where the kind of policies that have been advanced refer to things like the distribution of resources uh, or, you know, what kind of educational opportunities should be emphasized. Uh, but nobody's ever going to sit there and talk about, you know, should we withdraw rights uh, from this group of people? Uh, not that I think there's any particularly penalized minority in Denmark, but you get the idea, right? Um, so I think that this is something that we can't necessarily solve purely at the level of theory, right? Uh, again, we need to look at different countries, different constitutional orders, ask ourselves what kind of direct democratic reforms would be practical uh, in those kind of situations uh, while being compatible with a liberal scheme of rights, uh, and then experiment uh, with this kind of direct democratic reforms. Uh, maybe, you know, the Irish model would work. Uh, in some contexts, maybe the Danish model uh, would work in others. Uh, there are some people who are proposing in Latin America that we can institute something like direct e-democracy. Uh, so as you might know, uh, in many parts of the developing world, there's a big push uh, for countries to try to secure internet access for all of their citizens, right? Uh, and some proponents have said, look, you know, one way to make governments more responsive uh, in poor parts of the world, since governments frequently aren't responsive, uh, is to basically create an app, right? Uh, where citizens in small towns, sub-regions, uh, can directly say to their officials, this is what we want, right? Which could actually be very beneficial, I think, uh, in making what are typically centralized political authorities uh, more cognizant of what's going on in the periphery of a country. Um, like Mexico, for example, uh, is where, you know, I saw some people propose this idea, right? Uh, so the potentials are really vast, right? I don't claim to have all the answers or know what we should do in each particular country. Uh, I just think that there are some interesting things that we can think about and experiment with. Uh, and we should draw inspiration from countries where this has been done successfully, while, of course, tailing uh, their innovations to our own particular needs. So, so if I was to come back to you, look, I always say this, like as someone who leans libertarian, I always have a problem with libertarian utopianists. 
<laughs> where they, they they kind of uh, try to paint some libertarian utopia and i always say there can be no life in uh, in in the current world where the state has no real role to play so i think you guys are living in la la land and 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 it equally scares me when we talk about things like direct democracy because uh i don't know I, people may not like it the closest i've seen to direct democracy is social media where everybody has a say and everything happens and that is a fucking shit show it is yeah spend some time so, on twitter and yeah you're not going to come away with the the conviction that you know the masses uh are exactly going to be the most responsible so that, factors sure. yeah so that 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 that's the place where i get scared and uh, I, and i get and i take your point that it should be a horses for courses thing that where um like i always say i'm selectively left leaning i'm selectively right leaning i'm sure. selectively libertarian and selectively progressive i it depends on uh, the efficiency of the proposal but then let's go into the other half now of the book where you know in the last chapter you talk about uh, what you say the ontology of, of law and mm-hmm. rights on critical legal lines so uh, you start by saying establishing the rule of law again now now this is uh, where uh, i'll give you a parallel analogy where you know different countries might have different problems now jurisprudence you know because establishing the rule of law is basically an issue of jurisprudence mm-hmm. now jurisprudence as we understand in the world whether people like it or not stems from a very christian understanding of what the world is mm-hmm. uh, it stems from a very biblical understanding of the world where i'll give you an example every, you know every time you know some religious right is debated everywhere in the world so you know people even judges across the world which is very funny it happens in india too you know they'll they'll, they'll ask questions like show me the doctrinal proof show me the book now i'm going to give you a picture of a country like india where basically you have non abrahamic faiths that are mm-hmm. the majority and non abrahamic faiths are not people of the book <laughs> there are uh, there are a lot of living breathing traditions here there are traditions in india that do not have a book they're just oral traditions mm-hmm. now if a legal system tries to bind them down how do they bind them down how do you establish the rule of law secondly the biggest problem i find in 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 even trying to establish many of these systems always is that how do we apply the harm principle now everybody knows mm-hmm. what the harm principle is we don't need to uh, so i always say to solve these problems in every case is we we see whether it violates the harm principle or not but then how do we get over this problem because whether we like it or not jurisprudence was designed in a very judeo christian world mm-hmm. it was not designed in a non judeo christian world in fact even a country like mine has a judeo christian centric judicial system without people even realizing it where you know there is a classic case recently of uh, the the temple of shabrimala in kerala where mm-hmm. they have this unique tradition where menstruating women of a menstruating age are not allowed inside the temple because the god has this story this. That, mm-hmm. so the god is a celibate so the god doesn't say women are impure because i've checked the text so anybody can you know i can challenge anyone on that but the god has the story <laughs> now the god does not want those people and indian law says that the temple that the temple is of the deity and the mm-hmm. deity is represented by the trustees now the god has that story now there are similar ayappa temples all over the country that do not have this rule now a judeo christian framework would try to universalize every single law mm-hmm. they would be like no this is the law this is the way show me the book it is not there your lived experience does not count so how would you work around that in your critical legal examination then and you can oppose shabrimala by the way i'm fine with that okay <laughs> yeah uh no no i mean that's a massive question right uh that i already gestured to you at the end of the book uh and i think um uday meta uh in his book liberalism and empire um expressed a lot of the dilemmas that's associated with this uh very artfully and articulately you'd actually probably enjoy it since uh he compares and contrasts uh john stuart mill and emma burke Uh, and decides that Edmund Burke was actually more tolerant uh, when it came to cultural differences, particularly Absolutely. with regard to India and Britain, uh, than a liberal like John Stuart Mill, uh, who some of your listeners might know, uh, was a hundred percent. Yeah, was part of the East Indian Company. Uh, but I care. Look, I think that the dangers that we have here are, are twofold, right? Uh, one is that we have every reason to be critical of a kind of militant or imperial liberal universalism uh, of the sort that emerged with Locke uh, and Grotius. 
uh, that reached its apex, as it were, in the 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, wherein there was this sense of uh, entitlement on the part of many liberals uh, to impose their system of social organization and their system of law pretty much willy-nilly, whoever they pleased, under the auspices of we simply know better, this is in line with universal reason, other cultural traditions and other ways of looking at things simply are old-fashioned or are going to be swept aside. Uh, and then this will be to the benefit uh, of the people that were colonizing uh, and tyrannizing since ultimately rationalizing their societies through liberal law will be beneficial. Right? None of us want to go back to that. Uh, I think that that was actually a monstrous project. Uh, whether you're talking about in India or Canada or in, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Africa, anywhere, right? On the other hand, and you and I have discussed this before, I think there's been a temptation uh, on the part of many on the left uh, to completely reject um, liberal universalism and say, okay, we just need to endorse a kind of cultural relativism. Uh, the only reason, uh, sorry, the only reason why a moral view has any kind of status uh, is because it's located in a given tradition. Uh, and these traditions can't criticize one another. They're kind of hermetically sealed. Uh, and the only kinds of normal moral validity that we'll accept are internal forms of moral validity, right? So, you know, this Indian sect that you're talking about believes what they do, and that's prime and proper. Uh, you and I might believe differently, Kushal, uh, but we're in no place to criticize them. I don't think that any of us want to go there either. That's moving too far in an anti-universalistic direction uh, where we might find ourselves in a position of not being able to criticize some doctrines that, frankly, really need to be criticized. Now, uh, if a Nazi party member comes up to me uh, and was clever enough to say, well, you have your vision uh, of the world and I respect that, and I have my vision of the world and you need to respect that as well, it just happens to be that my vision of the world entails your destruction. Uh, I would say you're an evil person, <laughs> and I think that that's just universally true. Um, we'll do everything that we can to oppose you, right? Uh, and so I'm not sure what exactly the solution uh, to this dilemma is, uh, except to say uh, with Kwame Apia that what I want is a kind of soft universalism, right? Uh, both in regards to our understanding of law and with regards to our understanding of normativity. Uh, what I mean by a soft universalism is one that respects difference uh, in the way that, say, John Stuart Mills would. Uh, in fact, even seeing difference as a beautiful thing in some respects, uh, because it testifies to the diversity of the human imagination uh, and our capacity to create different, uh, but nonetheless meaningful kinds of life, right? Um, but the reason why we need to respect difference uh, is because we universally hold that it's important for human beings, as human beings, uh, to get to enjoy a dignified life uh, where their rights are respected and where none is held to be substantially more important than any other, right? Uh, so my respect for difference flows from a conviction that's universalistic in its nature. Right? Uh, and the way that I cast this out in my interpretation of law is by saying we don't want an imperial formalistic uh, interpretation of law that says that we should just impose these rules on people. We know what's best. They should have no say in that. Uh, and everything will go well when we've done that, which is what many classical liberals, uh, like John Stuart Mills, in some instances, would hold to, at least when it came to so-called underdeveloped or uncivilized countries. Uh, the kind of conception of law that I think is appropriate to the soft universalism is one where that's democratic, again, uh, where we have a system of rules, but uh, nonetheless, we all have to agree upon those rules, um, you know, subject to democratic and deliberative processes. Uh, and whatever kind of rules we decide to set for ourselves, they need to be respectful of the rights of other people, uh, subject to qualifications like the harm principle, for example. So, so don't you think you'd run into some problems where you talk about part three, where you talk about the jurist generative powers to achieve dignified self-authorship? So le let me lead this part. So, so you say conceiving of rights on jurist generative lines naturally deviates substantially from the deontological norm where they are intended as settled projections or trumps against state interference. Mm -hmm. While the critical legal model of rights does entail such protections, it posits mm -hmm. that the deontological approach is too formalistic and still conceives of rights as either static moral principles or creatures of positive law, which are to be settled upon once and for all by theorists or legal mm -hmm. officials. Instead, the power to define what is controlled by rights should be developed to a greater extent to the citizens and subjects of law. And this is where the problem lies, right, Matt? Oh, that yeah. Where, where, because the more the more we go back to the people, like I gave you the example here that, uh, you know, I always say 
the reason people are relativists is because relativism is so seductive. You can basically oh, yeah. justify anything. Like you can pull anything out of your ass and just say, oh, that's my culture. That is yours. Right. And, and, and I get the seduction of relativism, but I also am scared with the, you know, the, the capacity of devourment of universalism. So while I admire your, you know, humility where you say, look, I don't have all the answers, but don't you think maybe in the future you might have to get even more specific? Well, I would say that I do get actually quite specific. Uh, and this isn't something that I talk about in my book. Uh, I mean, you follow my other writings. Uh, I tend to make political interventions on uh, local uh, or topical issues. Uh, and that's where I kind of cash my viewpoint out uh, in greater particularity, right? What I meant by the passage that you uh, were talking about is um, fairly simple, actually, in some ways. I didn't express it simply because I was appealing to an academic audience, but it can be expressed more simply, right? It's like, look, take something like freedom of religion, which we were just talking about in the example you gave, right? Uh, a kind of formalist approach would say that freedom of religion just means that uh, religion should be able to practice their faith uh, without any kind of interference from the state, uh, possibly from any other kind of citizens or private organizations. Uh, um, we'll leave it at that. Right. Uh, but the real problem emerges. Well, what do we mean by non-interference? Right. Uh, and this is where a lot of the specific debates about freedom of religion become very intense uh, and sometimes very, 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 very concerning. Right. Uh, so one example that we're dealing with in Canada right now uh, is what freedom of uh, religion in education means. Right. Uh, so, for instance, some people will say freedom of religion in education uh, means that public education, at least, uh, should teach no religious view whatsoever, right? It should be purely secular uh, in line with, for instance, the French model uh, that you see in France, right? Uh, basically, you know, you might have seen this old Simpsons episode, you know, uh, the minute you set foot in a public school, uh, for all intents and purposes, there is no God, right? <laughs> or at least we operate like that. <laughs> you know, and, you know, some people like that. They say, but, you know, religious critics will say, but actually, that's not being neutral with regard to religion. That's taking a religious stance, right? Which is that, Either we don't know if there is a God or we hold that there is no God, at least within here. Uh, so other people will say, well, what freedom of religion in a public school entails uh, is teaching all different religious perspectives as if they're equal, right? Um, which is what we do in Canada, of course, right? <laughs> you know, it's a nice compromise position. So we say, look, you know, maybe Christianity is right. Here's what Christians believe. Here's what Catholics, blah, blah, blah. here's what Hindus believe. And, you know, they have some interesting Jains, you know, whatever, right? Everyone, you know, is kind of, part of the mosaic, right? Uh, and then the last kind of position that's sometimes staked out by people who argue for freedom of religion is uh, just everybody should get their own schools. You know, you have Catholic schools, Hindu schools, Jewish schools, and, you know, uh, and within them, you're allowed to teach uh, what you believe to be true as true, uh, and everyone should receive public funding to do that. Uh, but critics will say, well, doesn't that kind of ghettoize our approach to religion, uh, where, you know, in Jewish schools, uh, people are taught that Judaism is true, Christian schools are true, uh, Muslim schools are true, uh, without there being any kind of dialogue, right? Um, so what I'm talking about when I say in Jewish generative is just that we should have a public debate uh, about which of these options we want to go for, uh, and we should recognize that there's no a priori way of settling it, because there's relevant arguments you can make for any one of these kinds of positions, right? Uh, and the only way that we're going to settle on which one seems most, uh, that seems most applicable in our circumstances uh, is through listening to one another, trying to decide what our interests are, uh, and trying to figure out also, in this case, uh, what would be best for students uh, in our country. All right, Matt, I'm conscious of your time. So before we wrap things up, uh, so mm -hmm. one last question to you. So uh, would you like to tell us about any other new projects that you're coming up with? Sure, thanks. Uh, so I have two new books uh, that'll be coming out soon. Uh, one is my big academic book, uh, The Emergence of Postmodernity, uh, that I was writing just before we did this. Uh, it'll also be with Palgrave, and it's a sequel of sorts, uh, spiritual sequel, let's call it that, uh, to The Rise of Postmodernity, uh, which is, I think, the first book that we discussed of mine. Um, and I'm very excited for that. I actually think it's my best book so far. Uh, not to toot my own horn, you know, best relative to me. Um, so, you know, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners uh, would be interested in that. Uh, and also part because I actually talk about uh, religious issues uh, in much greater detail, uh, discussing, for instance, how secularism uh, was very important to the emergence of postmodern culture. Right? Uh, the other book that I have that's coming out soon that's much, much shorter um, uh, is a book on cosmopolitan socialism for zero books. Uh, it'll be a much more popular work, less academic-y, you know, no footnotes. Uh, and it's dedicated to the late Michael Brooks, uh, so some of your listeners might know, uh, was a very popular left-wing uh, podcaster, YouTuber, 
uh, who sadly passed away far too young last year, uh, in his book Against the Web, which people should check out, uh, he gestures towards something he calls cosmopolitan socialism, inspired by Amartya Sen, uh, Cornell West, and a few others, uh, but he never got a chance to kind of cash out what that means. Uh, so I'm going to do my best to kind of draw upon Michael's spirit, as it were, uh, to kind of spell out what I think a cosmopolitan socialism would entail. Uh, I'm not sure when that's going to be coming out. Uh, it'll be coming out when I'm done it, probably sometime next year. Uh, but I think this will be a fun, interesting book. Uh, and if people kind of want a more accessible uh, side uh, of my work, it'll be the one to check out. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I, you know, Matt, I always look forward to your books. So really looking forward to this one. So once again, Matt, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Anytime. Thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoyed it. And uh, again, uh, whether you agree with me or disagree with me, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I really hope uh, the same is true of your listeners and that you all stay safe and that we can fucking get over this hump uh, and get back to actually seeing each other in person sometime, which I'm sure yeah. we're all looking forward to. All right, guys, time to wrap things up. Uh, so I'm going to leave the link to purchase Matt's book in the description of the podcast. It doesn't matter if you're going to be watching this on YouTube or you're listening to this in the audio version of the podcast. You can go and click the book. I really love reading Matt's writings. In fact, I, I make sure that every time Matt writes, I read all his articles. Uh, I always tell Matt, the beauty of life is that, you know, you and I look at things so differently, but we're still able to admire each other's point of view. And, and that's what life is all about. In fact, you know, as the great Mahavir said, Anekantwad is a reality. You know, we have to learn to look at multiplicity of viewpoints. And, and I remember once a very senior politician in India had told me that if we all agreed on everything, life would be very boring. And, and what indeed. this is yeah, so you know, I always love reading Matt. I insist each and every one of you read his writing, buy his books. I know a few of you are lawyers that listen to the podcast. If especially if you're a lawyer in India, you should read Matt's point of view. Also, I would request you to support the Charvak podcast. So please subscribe to the channel, like the video, leave your comments over here. Uh, please support the podcast on Patreon or become a member on YouTube. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste, take care, goodbye. Thank you.